Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. All right. Hello. I can't, oh. Here we are. <laughs> Ned. Okay, perfect. Let's go. Thank you, Adam, for that introduction, and thank you to Relevant Wealth Advisors for the support of this program. Um, it's a real honor for me as a longtime music journalist to uh, be here with Jan Wender, you know, a, an icon of our profession and founder of, co-founder of Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, and it's great so many to see, you, so, see so many of you here uh, in person. And the Commonwealth Club will be having more in-person events in um, the weeks and months to come. You can get information about that at uh, commonwealthclub.org. And I want to make sure to say hello to everyone watching online as well. Hello there. Um, a quick note uh, before we jump in. If, we, uh, if you're here in the audience, you have the question cards uh, on your chairs for either Jan or me. Uh, please write it, and um, they'll bring, me, bring them up to me during our discussion. Um, uh, for you online, um, uh, you can... You can write down in the ch your questions down in the uh, chat box on YouTube, and those will be brought up to me as, as well. Um, so um, as, as uh, Adam mentioned, we're both uh, sort of Marin County boys. Um, I, I was, I've been uh, a journalist for a long time, and I thought I knew uh, as much as there is to know about music scene in Marin. But until I read Jan's book, I didn't really know that he spent a great deal of his childhood in, in Marin County, the early years of your childhood, on uh, the quintessential Marin County Street, Rainbow Road. So, <laughs> so, and you also began your uh, journalism career as a publisher there. Yeah. So uh, would you mind painting a little picture of what that, your childhood was like as a Marin County guy? My, well, my childhood started in the 50s in Marin County in Los Ranchitos, north of San Rafael. Was it a time when 101 was a two-lane road, and to, if you were going north, you had to take a left turn on a highway to get into where we lived. It was before the Civic Center was built, and certainly way before Carolinda. Uh, it was kind of a real suburban American dream-type childhood. My parents were both in the Army and Navy and moved from New York to the West Coast right after the war to kind of pursue the American dream and build their own house and, you know, buy their convertibles and uh, started me. And Marin was kind of a, also kind of quintessential suburb, uh, which was being built at that time where everybody was coming from. The war, the beginning of the baby boom, where homes were being built and the public school system was being built. And we had a, a, a Nike Air Force Base uh, or missile silos in the hills nearby. And Hamilton Air Force Base was in the north, so you'd go to sleep at night wearing... If you heard planes overhead, if you were young, you were worrying that the Russians were coming to drop the bomb and so forth. <laughs> Seriously, that was the stuff of nightmares. And um, it's also where uh, I started reading the Chronicle as a young, as at eight years old, and listening to a little a transistor, early transistor radio crystal radio set under the mm -hmm. covers, and listening to. Uh, what was KEWB then, maybe, or KFWB or KFRC? I don't know, Hire's Request Hour, right. which is where I first started hearing music. Um, the only other musical roots there 
And I left, by, when I was 12, we moved out, I moved out, and went away to school. The only musical was, was that we used to go to Camp Lagunitas in the summers, and then was rented after I had long gone by the dead. And they kind of lived there and used as a rehearsal space for years. Anyway, that's my experience with my music. Those are my musical roots. And the Irish Radio R and the Dead. But you also started your first publication. Oh, I forgot the question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. <laughs> I was, for some reason, I don't know why, I decided to start a neighborhood newspaper called The Weekly Trumpet. And we'd type it out on a ditto stencil and quarter pages in different angles. So you could then, when you got the dittos back, you fold them half and, and a quarter and sold them throughout the neighborhood for, I think, a dime each. And it was called The Weekly Trumpet, and it had in it, you know, news, little local gossip, you know, I wrote editorials about the pulse rates or something. So Eisenhower years. I don't know why I was writing editorials. And uh, we, you know, did that for about six or seven months with some friends of mine and, you know, to split up the earnings and split up our $40 net profit. We got our picture in an independent journal and... Uh, you know, it was, otherwise it would have died. It would be a little noticed today. But, um, and then I, at San Venetia High School, or not, San Venetia Middle School, did the newspaper there. And by the time I got to boarding school, I was the editor of the yearbook, and editor of the local, the editor of the school newspaper, and a local columnist. And also I started an underground newspaper of sorts in my, a student newspaper, not an alumni newspaper, in my school. The theme of my school was was very nautical because the headmaster, this is an excruciating detail, I apologize, was from naval, the graduate of the Naval Academy. So the theme was very nautical to school, and the team was called the Mariner. Teams were called the Mariners, and the yearbook was the Dolphin, and the newspaper was the main sheet, and so forth. So I called my little in an underground newspaper the Sardine. <laughs> we had three issues of the Sardine. It was, then it was banned. I was literally banned. It was kicked off campus. But in those three issues, the, the slogan of the newspaper was all the news that fits. And, and the, the main column on page one was random notes. So if you know what random notes means, maybe it doesn't resonate. But that would go show up later. In another, it would show up later. Another publication we're familiar with. And uh, you, were, uh, you know what I found interesting is that in those days, Marin was a very blue-collar place. And uh, I think you said, um, you know, there were class differences between you and the kids. You know, you had, a, kind of had trouble fitting in. Uh, you were a self-described problem child, you know, kind of. Um, I wouldn't self... My mother described me. Oh. My mother said I was the most difficult child she'd ever met. And she used to write about child psychology professionally. She said, <laughs> I know what I'm speaking of. I mean, it was beyond problems. <laughs> I was rated. In yeah, a, and your friends were more, things. Your friends were more, you know, blue-collar kids, which is funny because now Marin is one of the most affluent places in the country, and in those days it wasn't. It's, it well, no, I mean, at those times Ross was around. Yeah, right. And uh, some other suburbs like that, Kentwood and Tehran, Belvedere and so forth. But where we were, north of San Rafael, there were, there were track homes on the other side of the tracks. And there were homes on my side, at our side, where people built their own homes and bought a couple of acres. Anyway, but because I was kicked out of all these other schools, I was in the local public school, and my friends were like, you know, blue-collar workers, you say, as I say in my book, my best friends were, one was a fireman's son, and the other, his dad was in San Quentin. I don't know what for, but, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, he, 
And it was odd, you know, just a different way of growing up. Was, uh, you know, pretty much all Catholic neighborhood, and the local Catholic church was across the street from the school, so on Friday, all the kids would be in, you know, the uniforms and be going to catechism, and, you know, we'd be sneaking off, you know, because we weren't uh, like that. And then you went off to boarding school, right. uh, Chadwick School, which is kind of a posh boarding school in Southern California, where you were more in your element, right? Yeah. Liza Minnelli was one of your classmates? Oh, yeah. Was she, what, was she a girlfriend of yours, too? For, for a week. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't so much, it wasn't, there's movie stars, it was just, you know, it, those kind of schools get self-selected for intelligent kids and smarter kids and more sophisticated, wherever they are, as opposed to pu- public schools. And um, I, I just didn't quite, I was brighter than everybody. And it was, all, it was difficult. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, that wasn't the prize value. And then I felt, you know, a little more, you know, there were more Jewish kids. And it was just, you know, mm-hmm. I felt more at home being posh than I am born to be posh. But uh, <laughs> that kid came later. <laughs> uh, I hate to ask this question, but I, but I need to. But you don't have to. You know, I don't have to. I'm okay. going to, though. <laughs> Uh, you said you wanted to re- set the record straight with, with, with your book um, after Joe Hagen's 2017 biography, mm-hmm. which uh, you helped him with. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, uh, then you weren't happy with it. So what, what went wrong with that? I just, basically, I had wanted, I had a firm idea of what I wanted in a book, and I had wanted to write it myself. Or I knew I, I, didn't, I didn't want to write it myself. So I was happy when this opportunity came along. And but picked the wrong person. I gave access to me, my friends, my files, and all, all the things thinking I had a good journalist here. And I thought I was so wrong, and I didn't even ask for approval or anything like that. Not thinking that a journalist should be left to be independent. But it, it turned out he was not a good reporter, really oriented towards the kind of gossipy, smarmy stuff. I had an agenda, probably ended up disliking me or something. Mm-hmm. And it just turned out to be dull and not very informative. And, just missed the whole point. And when it came to the opportunity that I had between retirement and my health problems, now I had time on my hands. I, naturally, I thought, well, I'm going to write this now, finally, because I didn't like that. I never referred it or tried to in any way refute it. I just started from scratch. Uh, and uh, I wanted to, uh, the idea of the, the book that I wanted to do was I thought that I wanted to really write a, a history of our times or a, a look at our times and understanding, try to get the... That's you, baby. Okay. Please turn off your watches before entering there. Um, the, and I thought that, the, you know, I'd read a lot of stuff about the 60s, the baby boom, or the politics of the times. And it's all kind of really thin stuff and kind of one side, very narrow... I find pretty dull, not interesting. Nobody really caught it. I've been thinking. I thought you could catch this thing, which we all saw as being such magic stuff in rock and roll, and then such important stuff on the political and social, cultural uh, stages uh, and arenas, that you could tell that story if I combined my own personal growing story, because I was like a leading edge, typical baby boomer or, you know, typical enough, mm-hmm. had been in all the bright places where it all had happened throughout this thing, from being from Rin to Berkeley, student protests in San Francisco, music and so forth. And um, 
if you told the story, not, my story alone wouldn't be very interesting, but it would be a good narrative device to go through the history of Rolling Stone, then building that organization, the people who made it, and where they're from, and the kind of where their motives are, and what Rolling Stone's purview was we covered. That you would really end up with a story of our times, because Rolling Stone covered about everything. Right. And, I, and I think that's what I ended up with here, and I'm pleased with it and proud of it, and it reads well, and I think it, it, it's authentic in that way. You know, yeah. the Hagen book was just kind of a quasi-hatchet kind of job. No, it reads really well. I, I enjoyed it, and it's, it's very lively, and um, so congratulations on it. Thank you. So after Chadwick, uh, you go off to UC Berkeley, mm-hmm. and um, you write in, in your book that LSD and music took over my life. Mm-hmm. And um, so what was, your, what was your college experience? I mean, this was a very tumultuous time, you know, the 60s. Um, you know, how, how was that for you? And what is that? How did that set you up for what was, the, what was to follow? Well, I have a character witness here in the audience. Which I, I won't identify by name, but Ned is sitting there. He was, he was a big buddy of mine in college. College was a... He was in Stanford, by the way. Um, you know, just well. I said, first off, there's the inherent college experience of you know going off and becoming an adult and becoming independent for the first time. But you know, the Berkeley thing was really totally unique. I mean, it was fine when I got there in '63, but in in I joined and I joined a student radical group called Slate at the time. But the, 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 but the next year, the fervor started on campus demonstrations and the civil rights movement was underway. The Berkeley was a main recruiting area for sending college students to the South to be on the Freedom Rides. And so it was a big part of the agenda with civil rights. And by some kind of weird time spark, who knows what, uh, student protests began on the Berkeley campus when I was there with the free speech movement. And I got deeply involved in that, as inevitably everybody in a Berkeley campus in one way or the other kept swore, 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 taken up in this hurricane of, of, of fervor around that. It was an obsession. It was all anybody did. School virtually stopped, even though classes were still going on, because everybody was so swept in, up in this thing. Every student, every faculty member, the government of California, and the Reagan, all, all of it. Um, what was it? Oh, so anyway, that was galvanizing. That was radicalizing in a way. It was during the free speech movement, their protest, the beginning of it, that I was walking by a big rally in a Sproul Hall Plaza where a big sit-in was underway surrounding a police car with a student they had arrested or a non-student they had arrested, a guy named Jack Weinberg, who coincidentally ended up, was the person who invented the slogan, never trust anybody over 30. Yeah. Um, they should have taken him away. But anyway, he refused to be arrested. And there's, there's thousands, several thousand students were around preventing that from happening. So it was going by, and then Joan Baez was singing at the protest after the steps, and she was in the voice of an angel. I mean, her beautiful voice was singing the Dylan song with God on our side. And in that moment, hearing her and understanding those lyrics kind of crystallized for me the kind of random thing I've been doing about what am I going to do in my life and watching these protests and you know, rolling. I had my political side and my, my socializing side and, you know, and it was the thing that just made me focus. Hey, well, well, you better, it's time to stand for something, to do something, to move it. So anyway, that 
then after that was drugs and music. And the combination turned into being a one being Rainbow Road. <laughs> yeah, I mean you and were here at, we are today. <laughs> you were at Ken Kesey's second Gosh, acid test. What? I was at his second out. Second acid test, right? I or, went down I I was a big Stones fan and they were playing in uh, December sixty five, I think, uh, in San Jose at the San Jose Civic Auditorium. Yeah. And after, right after that there was a two blocks away, two blocks away the acid test. Yeah, and Some the house, frat the, house and the house band was not the Stones. It was the dead. Yeah. <laughs> and it was their second appearance as the dead, or maybe even their first appearance. And I didn't know. So I walked up to the person who later turned out to be Phil Lesh. I said, What's your name? You know, I'm a stoned on acid. And he's obviously signing. He goes, The Grateful Dead. And you go, Whoa, wow. <laughs> Great thing to hear when you're on acid, right? <laughs> um, at, at some point, uh, you came under the wing of Ralph J. Gleason, who is uh, the jazz critic, supposed jazz critic for the, for the Chronicle, and really a music writer. First adult to really recognize um, you know, the significance of rock and roll and to, to be a supporter and advocate for, mm-hmm. for rock and roll. Uh, you know, how, how big an influence was he on you, and, you know, and what, what role did he play in co-founding Rolling Stone? Um, well, he's a big influence on me. He was my really first adult mentor. Right. And uh, I, like everybody in the Barry, then read his column three times a week. And the column goes, the only thing really going to be about rock and roll music and kind of student activities and lefty kind of stuff, although he was a jazz critic and a very well-respected national jazz critic, and that's what he's there for. So he was stepping out with this stuff, and he got ridiculed, really, for liking rock and roll so much and thinking... His idea was that the Beatles were fantastic musicians and Stones Dylan and that some of these people were the poets and the poets of our time and the music was very valuable, worthwhile. It was the key to what was going on in the country and with young people and should be paid very closely attention to. But, you know, his, his fellow adults mocked him. They said, well, he's 48 years old, but he, he's 48 years old, but he can't decide whether he's three 16-year-olds or four 12-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> well, he loved that. He, he really did. Um, and uh, so as a student yeah, I met him when I was a student there and writing at the time a column in his Im- kind of imitative of his and I was writing for the Day of California once a week and it was about being my adventures that week at the film auditorium or going out with my friends like Ned there particularly he was a character in my column and um, uh yeah, and we, we were just kindred spirits. You know, I looked up to him, and he liked what I was doing. He thought he was a talented young person. He'd take under his wing, and he liked he liked mentoring people. And so I spent tons of time hanging out there. Anyway, when it came time to do Rolling Stone, he was the person I turned to for advice as to what to do with my life. And we tried various things, and we finally settled on well. The only thing you can get done is what, if you do it yourself, because nobody's going to do it for you. And I had tried freelancing and writing, but there was no outlets for it. No one outlet that commissioned me a review of Sgt. Pepper's in summer of '67 rejected it. Uh, called and they, it was a New York magazine called uh, High Fidelity, which was a big magazine. They said I was too hyperbolic, <laughs> so. About Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> it was, you know, I couldn't write for anybody else, so I'm going to have to write for myself. So he helped me shape it. You know, the name Rolling Stone was a recommendation from him based on uh, Like a Rolling Stone, an essay he wrote about it. And he, you know, really oversaw it, you know, in a way. I mean, I did all the work, you know. I mean, I, 
it wasn't but he he shepherded along kind of spiritually and journalistically and ethically and you know introduced the people we need to know right away but um you know with you know you know home tons you know he's a great man yeah and um did far more than just one something. He saved the San Francisco rock scene, you know. Yeah, he, he was really a mentor. Um, you did a little stint at Ramparts before that with Warren Hinkle and Robert Shear. That uh, had some influence probably on, you picked up a few ideas. But you started Rolling, Rolling Stone on a, on, a, on a shoestring, really, some investments. From mm-hmm. Family, my mother, Ralph. my mother-in-law, my stepmother. Ralph, through some of Ralph, yeah. myself. And it was it was sixty seven, the summer right. of love in San Francisco. You know when when San Francisco was the center of the uh, countercultural universe and mm-hmm. radiating peace and love and music all over the world at that mm-hmm. point. So, um, and really in so that it, year, in that of sixty seven, that summer sixty seven, Sgt. Pepper's came out. KMPX, the first FM underground station, so called freeform, whatever was was founded. Bill Graham was working here, right. and Rolling Stone started. And Cumulity was sending a message out the entire world, you know, which was, come on, join the fun. You know? And the Beals were saying, get aboard. You know? Anyway, so all, the, all that happened at once. And, um, it, was, you know, it was quite spectacular. It was not, yeah, and the Summer of Love is kind of background to that. But. Yeah. And, and you know, Rolling Stone was really the first... Um, magazine or publication to take uh, rock and youth culture seriously, you know? Um, before that, there was really not nothing, you know, to tell you the truth. And um, you said, um, can you talk about the, the magazine's mission as part of what you called the revolution of culture and consciousness, I think is the way you put it. Well, I mean, I thought, and Ralph thought it was through music you had this prism into society, you know, a unique view of it, and it was a, a shared view of it by people who were like Dylan fans and Stones fans and Beale fans, and it was an understanding of a little bit of what the mainstream society was in the kind of the culture of it, not to describe it at length, but uh, it was a viewpoint based on kind of the idea that you sh- of, of human justice, you know, of, of, of equal rights, of respect for other people, of respect for other cultures, all the values we've come to embrace, but they weren't quite articulated there yet, and they were most articulated, particularly for young people, in this music. Yeah. They weren't articulated in newspapers, magazines, TV stations. There was no other, you know, there wasn't a lot of books about it, or literature. There had been a beatnik generation and some stuff there, which is not quite the same, but to this was what the, this expressed the yearning and uh, Ideas of, of young people, of the baby boom, of what I've always called the best educated, wealthiest, uh, and biggest cohort of the American population in the history of the you know, United States. And it was coming of an age at a particular time of, of, of <clears throat> technology and against the background of, of, of um, integration, racial integration, it's beginning, and um, this music. And the music expressed it all. And it also happened to contain these several really genius artists. Yeah. You know, in uh, rock and roll musicians, fully all working together and all working off of each other, listening to each other, Dylan, Stones, Beatles, many others. You know, we're equivalent to, the, to Paris in the 20s. Yeah. Right? It'd be, you know, a number of great impressionist artists or 
working together and seeing each other work, Matisse, Picasso, Leger, and Dante, but just this conference of people. Anyway, what was the question again? Oh, <laughs> what was the point of it? Oh, so um, Ralph articulated that vision well, and it was really to promote that vision and the musicians and the quality of the art and the culture that went with it that we yeah, right. set out to and nobody else was doing it. And Ralph called it, we called it, we, we called the music the tribal telegraph or uh, the glue that held the generation together. Right. And we were mocked for that widely, you know, and people, oh, you're not going to stop the war in Vietnam with consciousness and this and that. And, you know, it's, it's true, many things take place, but I think without the anti-war movement of consciousness, the word would probably still be going on. It still is, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Um, just a different place. Same, same people, same players. Um, the, um, and I think that's what it took. You know, politics yeah. would, had become corrupt, kind of bankrupt philosophically. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's too simplistic to say that the two parties were the same things, but they were in yeah. so many ways. They were, yeah. Do you think uh, Rolling Stone could have gotten off the ground anywhere but San Francisco? Possibly, but I think this was a unique place for it to be nurtured away from the pressures of uh, Los Angeles or New York and in a really a, a community that was so based on the arts and the liberalness of the attitude and the kind of freewheeling spirit of the times, the kind of laissez-faire spirit about living, which mm-hmm. was what we exemplified. <laughs> Yeah, so John Lennon was, uh, he was featured in your debut issue, right? The first one. And um, he once called, I love this story in the book, he once called you, and out of the blue, I think, uh, he and Yoko, he said, we're coming over to right. the offices. And um, then you ended up spending the afternoon with him. Could you talk a little bit about what that experience was like with, you know, John and Yoko? And I have been talking to her and him for the last year or two on the phone, and by telex and all that stuff, and we were, they were giving us little interviews all the time, we were covering their peace activities, you yeah. know, and the bed ends, and so we were their kind of mouthpiece for it, and I'd been asking John, uh, since really the first year of Rolling Stone, to do an interview. Now, at the time, the Beatles were still the Beatles, they were sealed in a really pretty hermetic bubble, because they didn't want any more trouble after John saying he was more popular than Jesus, and they were the lovable mop pops, and that image was very carefully guarded, um, even as they started taking drugs and going to India and all that stuff. But in any case, uh, they came to San Francisco, and I had met Yoko. They called, they came to San Francisco, and they called out the blue and said, we're here. And uh, so come on down. And they came in 20, 30 minutes later and toured the office. And the first time I met John, the whole place was agog. You know, <laughs> as was I. I was trying to be totally cool. But you know, he's nice, disarming, charming to everybody. You know, he knew what it took and what like me did all that. Then we were going to go back to the hotel and then Jane and I were taking them there and they were staying at the San Francisco Hilton. And furthermore, they were poolside in that little pool. They had some in the middle of the place and so they had a cabana. So, I mean, they were in the most public situation possible. So first we packed them up and we, put, we moved them up to Huntington and, uh, uh, and then spent the weekend. You know, uh, going out to dinner and seeing San Francisco touring, uh, and then that led that relationship led then to my doing Lennon Remembers about six months later. D- didn't you go see Let It Be together with him? We went and saw Let It Be together, and he had told me he said that they had never seen it before. So some it, yeah. empty theater in Upper Polk, 
that we went to in the middle of a Friday afternoon, nobody's in the theater, and it's forced watching it, and it was, the movie's obviously about the breakup of the Beatles, or that's what it looked like. And uh, when we walked outside, you know, he started crying, and we all started crying. We all huddled and hugged each other, and forced him and started crying, kind of. Pretty mind-blowing experience that the beat, you know, I was 25 or 24. But uh, footnote to that is Michael Lindsay Hogg, who's the director of that, the original director of it, called me a couple of, last week. Said he read that and that he has screened it for them like three months before, and he has it in his diary and all. But I just think they also remember that John said he'd never seen it before. I don't. That's good enough. I'm. They're both true. I'm sure. You, you have an eye for a literary talent, obviously, and you were a great editor. Uh, Thank you. And you championed the careers of uh, some big names, Tom Wolfe, P.J. O'Rourke, John Landau, my old friend Joe Esterhaas, uh, and, of course, um, the inimitable under S. Thompson, you know, among others. And I, I love the story of you, of you meeting Thompson, uh, Hunter, uh, in... Uh, in, in your office, him coming in your office. Can you, can you tell, talk a little bit about what that was like, beating Hunter Thompson for the first time? Uh, well, I, rather puzzling. You know, I mean, I didn't know what to expect. I had no idea whether it was in a coat and tie or much. I mean, I knew the, read the Angels book. I knew he read the Angels, rode with the Angels, and he was running for sheriff because we were coming, he was coming to discuss doing that article with me. In Aspen. So. In Aspen. Yeah. Right. And, uh, but... You know, I met a lot of people, but he walks in two and a half to three hours late and <laughs> walks in my office and he ambles in, and Hunter was like 6'2 or so, and he ambles in, he's a bulky guy, kind of awkward, very strong, and he's got like Converse sneakers, and he's wearing a pair of shorts, and he's got a rayon shirt, which has kind of got red and white circles all over it, <laughs> and a medallion around his neck, and he's smoking out of a tar guard filter, and he's got a bubble hairdo, a gray, kind of gray-haired, like a woman's hairdo, a bubble, where they, did you remember the, Yeah, yeah. If you remember the bubble, like that. And he, then he's put, he comes and he's carrying a leather satchel, sets it on my round desk, unzips it, opens it up, and starts pulling out things that he's going to need for the meeting we're about to have. And so he pulls out, you know, a carton of cigarettes and a, a, a pack of Targard filters there. And a ball of whiskey here, six pack of that, a buck knife, uh, a, uh, what do you have in there? Um, notebooks, magazines, uh, uh, what else did he have in there? Several other things. He had a f- flashlight. It was important. <laughs> and the kind with that police baton heavy end on it. And then, oh, and a siren that you could, in a, with a suction cup on it, you could stick on the top of a car, you know, flick on, and put that down in Sat down with all the stuff on that can openers, lighters, Zippo lighters. <laughs> and then he proceeded to talk for two hours. And, you know, so at the end of it, I was like, wow, you know, I mean, we had discussed the peace and all this, all kinds of stuff. And he was just great. And it was, it was like, but I had to leave. I had to go home. <laughs> and um, that led from there on to this kind of wonderful, you know, but began as a wacky, good, Fun relationship to a deep, deep friendship of, and the families and a deep relationship as editor and writer where we really could lock together, where I could really be of service to him and knew where he 
was going, what he was doing with things, and be his backup when he couldn't make it on time. And with the same mission, you know, and, and we had to share this, the same ideas and also shared the idea that we had this wonderful, you know, stage in Rolling Stone from which to speak and in which I would hit our stage together and we wanted to have real influence on the politics of the country. And, uh, and he was talking about these people, these, the, the, freak, the hippies, he said, you know, don't know Kent State from Kent Cigarettes. You know, we'd have to get and mobilize them, and that's what we set out to do. Yeah, and um, I didn't realize what an influential figure he was in, in, in steering the coverage, you know, especially your political coverage. I would think of him as a, as a Doonesbury character, Uncle Duke, with, with the drug spots in front of his eyes and everything. But, but he was really, and you even considered having him as a partner for a while. Is that right? Well, he wanted to be partners, and he kept talking about Henry Lewis and Britain Haddon, who was his early partner in finding us. And I said, this is not going to work, Hunter. You know, I mean, we, we are partners, but if we go, and, you know, you're going to take all my money and spend it buying a hotel or a car dealership somewhere. <laughs> I mean, let's I mean, just, you know, so we used to joke with each other, but it wasn't that, I mean, he would always look after my interests, I would always look after his interests for all times, you know, and did. And um, my more after his interests. His more after his interest than my interest, but uh, the uh, you know I mean he was a clear-eyed guy about politics and power and writing and all that stuff, and he wasn't really Uncle Duke except like in yeah. part, and and then it's really not that character Gary came up with, and you know that that was a character it wasn't Gary's character, but it ended up trapping Hunter somehow. Yeah, right. You know, there were a couple of pieces in the magazine that really put Rolling Stone on the map, you know, in those days. And one, one of them was the uh, John Lennon interview, the bitter John Lennon interview, <laughs> Lennon Remembers. Mm-hmm. She later called Lennon Regrets for saying mm-hmm. it. And um, the other one was uh, Rolling Stone's kind of wall-to-wall coverage of Altamont. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, laid the blame for the, for the violence and the death of the, one of the concert goers at, at the feet of... Um, of Mick Jagger and Stones, not entirely. No, we laid the we laid the blame on everybody. On everybody, but you know, they, everybody was they involved. weren't excluded. They weren't excluded, and they couldn't blame it on their people. They didn't do the due diligence. You know, Bill Graham was at fault because he didn't help put it on. The Dead's managers, the, you know, everybody. It was just mm-hmm. a whole complete, you know. Well, you, doomed. You were, you were friends with, friends with Jagger at that right. point, and he was not happy about the whole thing. No, I mean he didn't. You know. He, he wasn't, no. And, but we had no choice, really, but to go ahead and do it as we saw our journalistic mission to be, and, but at the risk of our relationship with the Stones, which was a risk, although I thought, knowing, knowing Mick, even then I knew him relatively well, or I knew him to respect him and his judgment and his intellectual character that he would come to see it and get over it, which, of course, he did. Uh, but... Um, uh, yeah, that, so but it was a story that's in our backyard. So the I got home, I didn't go. About a Monday morning when I woke up after the Sunday concert, there's a the Examiner or something because the Chronicle closed to her, like, calling it Woodstock West, you know. And and I was also getting calls from everybody who had been there and our staff saying it was the worst thing, this, this, this and on. And and so we quickly realized what was the real story was, and that we had twenty writers there and photographers, and we could put this one together in a way nobody else had. And we did. 
And it led that and our coverage of Charles Manson led directly to our winning the first National Magazine Award when we were a little pipsqueaks here in San Francisco. Right. And the, and the Lennon interview, uh, which he kind of bitterly, you know, uh, talked about a lot of people probably, as I said, he regretted it. But uh, you put it out as a book, right. published it as a book later, which he, against his wishes. Right. And... Um, he, he kind of, what happened then? I mean, he, he didn't like that. He didn't want me to publish it. I wanted to publish it. It's my right to do so. I didn't really like going against his, his wishes and what he wanted, especially after all I owed him. And I felt sick about it for a long time. I made the mistake. But later on, as I came to see it, you know, at first I thought I was just being terrible in person. And then as I came to see it, not at all. It was, you know, I'm not a duty exact, but I was well within the purview, but unfortunately, I, I discussed this with people, and some of this has been blown up out of proportion. Did he ever forgive you? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. And you and you had a, a nice relationship with Yoko. After. Oh, yeah. And became very close to friends with Yoko after, and uh, she made me the godfather of her son, and she's the godfather of one of my children, and her son Sean is the godfather of another of my children. So we ended up in a very close relationship with that family. You weren't as close with, with Paul McCartney early. But, well, I didn't know Paul. Then. But you became later, right? I mean, Yeah, I mean, because, well, yeah, you have to have one loving beal you're friendly with. Um, no. Uh, did, 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 if you're deep in a friendship with Yoko, which we were, and we, we, Matt and I, Jane and I, we all used to travel all the time together, and Matt and I would spend Christmas and vacation and things, either Christmas or Thanksgiving, with every going way back, even before that, for years. But you inevitably are part of her view of the world, and particularly her view of the Beatles and the relationship between John and Paul. So, you know, I was on John's side in, these, in this dispute, and I felt guilty about it, and I think that Paul got that. But, you know, it never really affected his relationship with Rolling Stone or too much. And, you know, he's, in the last four or five, ten years, he's been around New York a lot, and so... Right. You know, despite all the successes of Rolling Stone in San Francisco, you know, you had a half million subscribers, I think, at one point. Um, national awards, as you mentioned, you know, by the mid '70s, some of the luster was going off. You know, San Francisco and the golden age of the magazine a little bit. And at the same time, you said that uh, you were tired of the ethos of San Francisco and its fading hippie orthodoxy. And um, you kind of sent shockwaves through, through the town and through your staff by announcing that you were moving Rolling Stone to New York. Um, Why did you feel you had to move to New York? Well, basically, if you're going to be in a magazine business, you want to get big, you have to be in New York. That's where the talent pool is. For writers, for the people in that kind of business, for advertising, selling, circulation, it's a New York-based business. And it doesn't thrive in San Francisco. No national magazine that ever thrives in San Francisco, or Los Angeles, or Chicago, with the exception of Playboy. It's just, that's where it is. So, come 76, we have half the magazine is in staff in New York doing business, and half is here producing the magazine editors. And I'm in New York more and more and more, you know, I'm commuting back and forth. It, that can't go on. So the decision was easy, consolidated in New York. As it happens, it, simultaneously, the kind of cultural glow of San Francisco had been fading, and the moment for that particular era had passed, both artistically and, I think, socially. I mean, if you want to go live in Marin, go live in Marin, it's great, you know, something like that. But uh, if you... 
if you stay, if, if, if we stayed here, we'd never have gotten where we got. And I was saying, you know, if you want to go to New York, if you're ambitious, you go to New York. And if not, you can stay here and grow up here. And before you know it, your hair is gray and you're still living in Marin. And that's that. There you are. So you stay. <laughs> I said, come, follow me. You didn't ask me to but, go. I, I would have gone. The only person I asked to go who didn't go was Ben Fong Torres. Right, Ben. And yeah. stayed here, thrives, and, you know. Uh, you, it was interesting though. you said that uh, you told me before of all the, the people who went with you to San Francisco all the relationships didn't last every couple that came all broke up and in the end nobody ended up very few people ended up still working there well after five or ten years you move on but I think once you get to New York you really have to decide what you're going to do who you're going to be and what growing up is about I mean if you're not prepared to work hard and be ambitious you don't fit in that Situation there, and you best not. Uh, but um, the, the face of culture was changed at the same time, mm-hmm. and the cultural weight of the country is moving back. I didn't calculate this or see it uh, to New York. People, all the artists were moving back to New York at that time. Mailer was coming back, and so on. And this kind of like society there just started picking up again. Soon enough, it was, you know, the Reagans were in the White House and money and admission on stuff became powerful in the downtown scene, Studio 54. All kinds of arts became the center of the art world again. Um, and we were in the middle of it. You know, we were on that big stage and playing that game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you about this being San Francisco and all uh, that. Um, you know, you talk openly about your homosexuality in the book. Um, saying that you felt, felt the first stirrings of that when you were in boarding school. And um, after 26 years of marriage, you had three children. Um, you left your wife and three sons, and now you're married to, to, uh, to Matt Nye, and um, very happily from what I can say. <laughs> and um, you were being true to yourself. You know, it was kind of a, it was, it was a hard thing to, to do, a hard time for you in reading, reading about it. And... Um, but you made it. You made it. You made it work. It sounds like you have three children now with Matt, uh, six kids all together. What, what's your life like now uh, with, with your family? Uh, we all live in New York City. The most we spend all summer at the beach. The two, my wife and our family are. My, the two families are like ten minutes apart in driving on the same beaches. They're kind of. Flow the children flow back and forth house to house all the time. We have dinner all the time. There's, you know, it's just it's 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 without literally putting everybody in the same place. It's kind of it's very much what they call a blended family, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're trying to raise the kids all together as one unit. And um, both my ex-wife and my husband Matt here get along better with each other than they do with me. <laughs> and they have common enemy, you know. So. And um, it's, it's really worked out fantastically. It's, it was a rough thing going into it. Sure. I was having a good time because I was, you know, in love. And uh, it's tough breaking up any marriage, and it was tough that. that but it, it came back together really nicely. You know, yeah. due to particularly the tolerance and understanding and the love that my partners have. Well, let's see. We're running on time, unfortunately, but let's see. Oh, here's some questions. We didn't get any gossip in about Mick or Bruce or Bono. Yeah, yeah. Bob what was your favorite or... interview? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. What was your, let's do some gossip. Okay. You know, talk about Bono. Bono is, is a great, fun character, very Irish, talks a lot, 
you know, magnetic, only sleeps five hours a day, can't stop talking, a charming, wonderful guy, you know, of course, a great performer, but um, loves to tell stories and is on a first-name basis with everybody in the world, including the Pope, I think, at this point. And uh, quite, the, quite the whirlwind. We're neighbors in uh, New York City, around the corner from us. He's, he and his wife are the godfathers, uh, a godmother, godparents, our daughter. And uh, uh, he's got a book coming up, too. You'll probably be interviewing him in a month. I hope so. And, and Jagger, I think he, I saw your, your interview, Bruce interviewing you in New York, and uh, you were saying that Jagger is a tough interview. Cause he... Nick is just English to the core. And... <laughs> In which you're very good at small talk, you know, good chitter chatter, good social, you know, skills and grace, but you don't talk about deep stuff. And I think for the moment, Mick is bored with talking about himself all the time, and just doesn't have the patience for it. And he's reluctant to spill the beans. He's extremely smart and can be very insightful. And he's 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 a really smart and thoughtful guy and knows that. But doing the interview is tough. You know, ask him well. You know, all these things, who wrote this song, who wrote that, where was this? And, you're, and he's trying to be cooperative, but just, you know, not in him. Yeah. But he's a terrific person and fun to be with. And Bruce Springsteen has become a close friend. I mean, he's the one who interviewed you at the 92nd right. Y in New York right. recently, which I watched on video. Uh, what's your relationship like with him? Very, you know, very good, very close. We see them frequently. Also godparents. Is he um, a godparent too? Yeah. Uh, sorry? You got parents too of his kids? No, no, no he is godparents. He and his wife are godparents with another of my kids. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, but he's terrific. He's really one of the most thoughtful people I've ever met. And self taught, real, really literate, great eye for American music, American literature, uh, terribly shy, yet also very forthcoming on stage and right. in love with his music. Let's see. Somebody wants to know an uh, audience question. Can you talk about your relationship, personal and professional, with Annie Leibovitz? Uh, well, you know, the story of Annie is she was, from, she was going to San Francisco Art Institute. She came into offices, our offices one day when she was like 20 or something with a portfolio of photographs. She wasn't studying photography or trying. She was studying painting, but she was intrigued by photography. She left a bunch of stuff for us. We ended up using one of them. And then she came back, and we started giving her a little assignments. And, you know, she was, a new, she was a whirlwind at the time, so full of energy, so willing to do anything, go on any assignment, go anywhere, lug tons of equipment around. She'd go on the road with our writers. She'd move in with the group. She'd be with them three or four or five days at a time, get the most intimate access, and had this great eye for getting portraits where people, you felt that you were so... Close to them, it was evolved into her style. This kind of penetrating, thoughtful look—you know—that she gets out of everybody, and of course became a very dear friend. She was very close with my wife, and uh, and at a point we really had to let her go, as the only way she could resolve her own personal problems and her drug problems and that. So she ended up getting onto a much bigger stage, even than all the claims she was getting at Rolling Stone and her reputation there. And working for Condé Nast over the years and commercials, she's now considered the world's greatest portrait photographer. And we're still, she took the picture on the cover oh, of this. your book. Yeah. And, um, you know, my daughter and her daughter, great friends. They go to school together. They ride together. And she's a neighbor. She's two blocks away. 
You can't shake these people, you know? <laughs> Before, we're running out of time, but just uh, last, uh, you know, we want to talk a little about politics. Rolling Stone was very big in covering politics and the voice of, a gen- of our generation in political, mm-hmm. in political ways. Um, uh, I think you interviewed uh, Al Gore, Clinton, Obama. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you interviewed Obama after the loss, uh, lost, right. he lost, uh, after, the, after Hillary lost the day after. Can you quickly tell what that Sure. Was? I interviewed him three different times. Yeah. Before he became president, in the middle of the presidency, and the very end, when he was leaving office. And we had agreed to do the exit interview, and we were going to discuss what he learned and what advice he would have for, you know, the successor, you know, Madam President. Hillary and what message it is upbeat, optimistic, looking, look back on your successes. It's not, it's not going to be a hardball gotcha interview, but it was scheduled for the day after the election because they figured he'd be free at that point. And, and that's when we couldn't talk before the election. We had to talk after. Wake up, at, I mean, go to sleep that night drunk, knowing we've completely been fucked. And so in the morning, I called up and said, Do you want to put it off? You know, I could totally understand. We'll do it in a week later. He said, No, come down now. Let's do it. So get, we get down there. I went down and took my son Gus with me. as a kind of a perk. And uh, it was a gray day. You know, it was cloudy. And, the, you know, Washington itself was dead quiet the day after the election. Get out of the White House. That's completely deserted. I mean, been there before. You know, it's always bustling around, especially the president's there. But I think everybody's there. Stayed up too late or dead drunk or whatever or too depressed to face people. But, you know, there's Obama. In coat and ties, come on in, let's get this done with. And uh, sat down, and I had to start a whole different kind of interview and scramble different questions, obviously. And the big thing is he wanted to say, what the hell? You know, what, what the fuck happened? What are we going to do about it? How are we going to... And he didn't, you know, you don't really want to press him on that point because, I mean, his job is to make the hope, most hopeful case for, as a matter of, what you should do, and as a matter of tradition and respect for the your successor, and put the nicest spin on a puzzle. But this one was hard to put yeah, well. a nice spin on. I mean, it was, this is terrible. And uh, I kept, we kept dancing around, and then finally he says, and he said smart things. He said, you know, but he says, well, I think, you know, when he gets here, somehow people change when they get in his chair, and there's that picture of Washington up there. And, you know, my, and I said, Jesus, you know. Mr. Obama, I mean, it's not, I don't think this man is capable of change. It's not going to, there's nothing to suggest. He says, look, do you want, if you want me and you want to get on the floor, curl up on the ball, you know, and get all depressed, well, we can do that. We can sit and just do that. And, but, you know, it's not a tragedy. It's not a tragedy. My mother dying of cancer is a tragedy. This is an election, and it'll have consequences, but there's another election coming up. And my advice to you is get to work. You know, mm-hmm. get started. Mm-hmm. You know, I hope this is going to get us nowhere. That was kind of it. I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, you've had some health problems in the last few years, so it's good to see you doing this and making the rounds and talking about your life and career and all that. And, uh, you know, you sold the magazine a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And Gus is now, your son Gus is now uh, COO or of it, running, running things. And, you know, you kind of... Did you bow out gracefully or, or no? <laughs> no. I, it's hard. To, I mean, and what about our generation? What's going to happen now? I mean, you know, is the is the. Well, we can team? talk about me and the generation. Let's fuck them. Yeah. Well, I'll try and do it in two parts. 
I, it, it, even though I had long decided I wanted to stop at 50 years mark and give it up, I wanted to gracefully take a brow and leave. And pretty much it worked out essentially that way. Not exactly the way I wanted, not the top of the game, but after the internet destruction. Oh, but the idea of leaving your baby when they're is difficult and turning over to your son. As much as you want to, there's, it's, it, you're not used to that, you know. And you're, so I said, you know, I was happy with them not selling it. That was fine. Gus running it was great. I understood I wasn't going to be in charge anymore. I had no problems with that. But I just still thought I knew more about it than anybody else, and they should listen to me. Well, you don't want to listen to me. I mean, he, he just bought it. You're going to run it, you know. And Gus was taking it. He'd worked there for four years, and he had his ideas what he wanted. And they really didn't want my ideas about it. And... I kept thinking it would, naturally. And after about three or four or five months, I started to understand they really, really didn't. And I finally confronted them, and I said, yeah, we don't, you know. <laughs> anyway, I, I got the office upstairs, kicked upstairs, you know, and it was fine. It was exactly the right thing. It was time for me to go. It's tough. Our generation, I mean, I, I think what's going to happen, I think our generation has pretty much become or becoming adults in a, in a really rich and satisfying way, you know, personally, I think people have been through, you know, have gotten rewards and money and families and great circumstances, great culture. All there's been a lot of rewards for this age group, uh, and we haven't solved everything, but I think that we can certainly look back with pride and say we had a huge influential role in bringing about all kinds of human rights, women's rights, gay rights, getting rid of the drug war. Uh, racial equality and a real kickstart to climate justice or whatever you want to call that not all of it's been solved but the progress was made between I was when, when the post-war baby boom started coming of age and now it's staggering yeah. I mean on the gay front you could in the 50s you could be arrested for being gay you could actually go to jail now you know you can get married you know at the White House I mean, that's a huge change in what you can see on TV Canty. Same with blacks. I mean, it was Jim Crow still yeah, when we grew up. Right, right, right. And now you can be the president of the United States. I mean, this doesn't mean everything's solved. And I, our generation, and I hope subsequent generations will, some, will have a better or easier time learning that change doesn't come overnight. It's a youthful impulse. It's not going to. And just because it doesn't come overnight doesn't mean you haven't, you know, push the problem along enormously. So all these things I think we can be proud of doing and against real high odds and stubborn recalcitrant adult culture and government, really real adult stupidity in our time that has gone to war a number of times, that maintained we're not taking down these systems of injustice. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that from what I can see, we've been able to... Uh, give this knowledge and information and idea to our own children right. and uh, that they will succeed us well in pushing this. I don't believe that in, that there's a, the next generation is apathetic or angry or you know, I think they're turned on and look up to, to us and say, these guys, you know, they had a great life, they did a good job, we, you, know, you know, like that. So, it's a nice yeah. positive note to okay. end on, you know, the success of the boomers good. and passing the torch. Um, so anyway, uh, thank you, Jan. And I want to thank everyone who joined us here in person and uh, online for this Commonwealth program. Very enlightening. Thanks so much. 
Um, I also want to thank uh, Relevant Wealth Advisors for the support of the program. Um, this program and others like it will be soon be online at the club's web- website at commonwealthclub.org. And um, thank you so much, John. My yeah. pleasure. Great. Oh, One more thing. One more thing. I'm Paul Libertor, and this Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.